Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Tuesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on today's program, we'll hear how a local job fair will include efforts to connect resettled Afghan refugees with jobs. Plus, the Canadian border is open. I'll speak with Canada's acting Council General of the Southeast, Louise Blay, about new restrictions at the U.S.-Canada border, the current supply chain backlog, and trade between Canada and Georgia. But first this, a local story that's gaining national attention. It's now in the New York Times. 300. That is the number of voter registration forms two Fulton County elections employees allegedly shredded last week. Now we're going to bring you all of what Richard Barron said yesterday. On Friday morning, the supervisors in the registration division were notified of two employees who allegedly shredded some voter registration applications. After initial review, we took action to terminate these two employees. We believe that these two employees may have checked out batches of applications for processing. Instead of fully processing them, in some instances, the employees allegedly shredded some of the forms. Fellow employees reported this behavior to their supervisor on Friday morning, and the employees were terminated the same day. We believe that approximately 300 voter registration applications are at issue. We reported this to the Secretary of State's office and requested an investigation. Chairman Rob Pitts also contacted the Office of the District Attorney for further review. Any Fulton County voter who has questions may contact the Fulton County Department of Registration and Elections at 404-612-7020. Anyone who attempts to vote in an upcoming election who is found not to be registered will be able to vote on a provisional ballot and further investigation will follow. Thank you. That was it. That's all that he said. Now, Closer Look contacted Director Barron for a follow-up interview as of air time. He was not available. A spokesperson told Closer Look with today being the first day of early voting and a board meeting, Barron would be tied up but did promise to get back to us. Meanwhile, Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger says, yes, his office is investigating the allegations. He also issued a statement calling on the U.S. Justice Department to open its own investigation citing repeated mismanagement issues with Fulton County elections. In a statement, Raffensperger cited in part, quote, After 20 years of documented failure in Fulton County elections, Georgians are tired of waiting to see what the next embarrassing revelation will be, close quote. By the way, early voting does start today in Fulton. In other news, the Clayton County Sheriff's Office faces a pair of new lawsuits over its alleged use of restraining chairs on detainees. The Federal Department of Justice indicted Sheriff Victor Hill earlier this year over related accusations and unreasonable use of force. Governor Brian Kemp then suspended Hill from duty in June. 
Clayton County's own jail policy says restraining chairs are meant for when an inmate poses a threat to themselves or others. Sheriff Hill has repeatedly been accused of using them as punishment. He has denied the allegations and told WABE the indictment is politically motivated. Finally, the Atlanta Dream have a new head coach, Tanisha Wright. I saw her play. She's pretty good. She becomes the team's fifth head coach in franchise history. In a statement from the Dream, Wright brings over 14 years of experience in the league as a player and a coach to this role, most recently serving as a assistant coach for the Las Vegas Aces. And on Twitter, Tanisha Wright said, quote, it's an honor to be chosen as head coach for the Atlanta Dream, and I'm excited to play a role in building a successful organization centered around the player experience. Close quote. Welcome, coach. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Following the end of that 20-year Afghanistan war, the Biden administration began notifying governors throughout the nation that thousands, tens of thousands of Afghans could be expected to be resettled right here in the U.S. Now, locally, several Several resettlement agencies are predicting that over the next year, more than 1,000 Afghans will come to Georgia. We are still working to confirm that number. With that in mind, organizations like New American Pathways are partnering with the Tucker Summit CID for an upcoming Tucker Back to Work job fair. It actually takes place October 26th at the Stone Ridge Event Center from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. And New American Pathways CEO Padia Mixon joins me now to talk more about the job fair and about the work they're still doing at New American Pathways. Padia, welcome back to the program. Hi, Rose. It's nice to see you again. Through Zoom. (laughs) Through Zoom. Yeah. You You know, you are the last in-person interview that I did before the pandemic. Really? Yeah. I mean, everything was okay. And I want you telling people I went to WAB and came out coughing or something like that. (laughs) I spoke with another agency some weeks back that was expecting Afghan refugees. Has New American Pathways, have you all started the process? Do you know in terms of numbers how many folks you all will, will be resettling here in the region? Yeah, uh, we've already received somewhere around 60 uh, folks from Afghanistan in the past maybe month and a half, two months. And we're expecting October through December to welcome about 150 people um, and, and you know, may maybe another 150 in the first three months of 2022. So not so 400, basically, in a sense, near. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> not more. Um, let's go through this process first are these mostly families or individuals mostly families mm-hmm. um and relatively big families so the average case is is a family of five um so we're seeing a lot of kids um a lot of, of couples with small kids 
And so the 60 that you have already helped, uh, how's it going for them? And I know that it's quite coming from Afghanistan to the low Georgia here, but uh, how would you assess uh, they're doing right now? Uh, Well, I think people are very relieved to not only have, you know, gotten out of Afghanistan, but also to actually be in community. some of the people that we've resettled spent time in, in military base waiting to come. So there's there's a lot of relief about being here, um, but most of the people we're working with have left someone behind. So there's also that concern of, you know, can I get my relatives out? What happens next? Um, so, so it's a little bit mixed. People, you know, relieved and ready to get their life started here, but also concerned about what's happening back home. And Pedia, will they mostly, and I don't know if you all can even accommodate and make this happen, will it mostly be in a certain area? Often, when we have these conversations, Clarkston comes up, and Clarkston is not that big, but it has its 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 wonderful international uh, reputation. It's 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 a melting, a blending of so many different uh, cultures and ethnicities. Is that primarily the area, or are you all looking outside of Clarkston as well? So we are probably going to have to spread out uh, quite a bit. Um, we are still placing in Clarkston and whenever we can, we do because people like to be there and there's a lot there's a lot there to support refugees in Clarkston. Um, but the housing, uh, you know, you hear from everyone right now that there, there's just not a lot of housing, especially for big families. And so um, we're, you know, widening our circle and, and may have to continue widening the circle even more. Our goal is to stay in town, MARTA accessible as much as we possibly can. Although some people are joining family that are already here. So they might be going to Gwinnett or, you know, I think we Loganville. Oh, wow. Loganville. Pedia, <laughs> let's talk about housing. How do you all find housing? I imagine you have partners that you all work with. Well, actually, we, in partnership with the other three resettlement agencies um, during the sort of end of the, um, or in, during the Trump administration, we we created our own uh, organization together um, called the Welcome Co-op to focus on housing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the Welcome Co-op um, is a is it, they have a big warehouse, and they scout out housing. They do the initial setup. They secure the furniture um, on behalf of all four of us. And so that's been wonderful because they have a, that's what they do all day long. So they have time to follow up on leads and focus on new places. And, um, you know, when it comes time for us to, to try and start a new resettlement community somewhere other than Clarkston, you know, that, that co-op is going to be really, really, really important. And if you said, going back to when you said that you're looking at some families around a number of five, are you primarily working with private landlords or apartment complexes and a because five in a household, that, that's a lot. I mean, I know people that have more than that. Uh, we, we have families of 10 that we've welcomed. You know, they're, they're big families. Um, so, yeah, I mean, w- one of the things that's been wonderful is we, we all have a partnership with Airbnb. Um, so we don't get a lot of notice that people are coming. So we've been able to provide temporary housing while we kind of look. But it's been a mixture of everything. You know, um, three-bedroom and four-bedroom apartments are tough to find when mm-hmm. we can find them private landlords when we can it is difficult because there, there is a little bit of a leap of faith even though the resettlement agencies pay the rent for in the beginning somebody's coming without you know all their documents they're not um you know they're, they're not your typical tenant so mm-hmm. so 
working with landlords is it can be tough. Speaking of, you mentioned not coming with all their documentation. That was one of my questions. What is their, their what exactly is their U.S. status in terms of res- residency here? So um, many are coming as uh, parolees. So they've been granted humanitarian parole, uh, which is different than refugee status. They they qualify for refugee benefits, but unlike refugees, they have to um, get an employment authorization document. And so um, that's something that we have to wait for. Um, And many may have to apply for asylum. Um, You know, they're their pathway to permanent residency and citizenship is not, um, it's not guaranteed and it, it's not the same as, as other groups. That, that's one of the reasons why we've been advocating for the Afghan Adjustment Act, mm-hmm. um, which, which would allow uh, a more permanent status for, for Afghan parolees. Do they need the work authorization form before they can be resettled? No, but before they can start work. And that comes through the federal government or is that a state? Yeah. It's federal government. And is there a backlog? Um, We are told that they are working through those as quickly as possible. Um, These groups have just come. They're applying for them before they leave the base. So we'll see. (laughs) um, How many times have you heard that? We're we're, we're working on it. Yes. You hear that a lot. (laughs) This is a, this has been a really interesting um, experience because things change really rapidly. And so we're, we're just kind of, to some extent, just going through it and see what happens. What's different about with resettling the Afghan refugees that, that you haven't experienced before? Is it because of all the circumstances, all the different set of optics around this? Well, I mean, there, they're not they're coming from they're coming stateside they're coming from military bases for the most part they don't have refugee status um documentation is a little bit different i mean you know uh, they don't and, have and, refugee status that might that's be that's right that might be interesting or baffling to some of the listeners why right. don't they have uh, refugee status if that's what they were being classified and we were labeling them as what what's the difference here well so there's a process for applying for refugee status so mm-hmm. um you know Traditionally, a refugee flees their country, they apply for refugee status overseas, and then um, and then they're once they're granted refugee status, they're brought with status. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, there's also special immigrant visa holders who help the U.S. military and they apply before they come and they come with status. Many of the folks that are here now, they didn't have time to apply or their applications were in process. They were just evacuated. So they do some processing on military bases, but they're in community um, earlier. And so they're granted humanitarian parole, which is temporary. Mm -hmm. They may have applied for another status and that may be in process, or they may have to apply for status um, here. And so that's different. Um, We're we're working with our immigration department a lot more with this group of people. Um, In the beginning, we didn't know what benefits they'd be eligible for. You know, now we do, and that that's great. Um, but you know, it, and and plus, they're coming from a military base. We might get you know very little notice that they're coming, and so that period of time to prepare is is a lot shorter. Um, other than that, though, you know, once they get here, they have the same. You know, other than that, <laughs> they have yeah. the same. Um, they have the same needs once they get here. Sure, English classes, medical appointments. You know, 
uh, cultural orientation, all of the same things that we do for, for other refugees. The voice you hear is Pedia Mixon. She's a New American Pathway CEO. We're talking about resettling Afghan refugees here in the region. You all are partnering with this Tucker Summit CID for the fall Tucker Back to Work job fair. We've actually talked about this job fair on the program before. How will all this work? Because if they do not have that authorization form, then they, they can't work. So are you? what's the process here? Well, so one of the reasons we're really excited about this Tucker job fair is because of the location. So mm-hmm. for many of our clients living in the Clarkson area, you know, they often go to work an hour away and um, they have to do van pools and to be able to find jobs close by is really important to us. There are some people that are already here and work ready and mm-hmm. we're encouraging them to attend the job fair. But additionally, our our staff that, that work in employment are also gonna attend the job fair and we want to build relationships with these employers because, you know, in the coming months, we'll be placing many, many, many um, parolees and refugees and, um, and, and SIVs in jobs. Um, so there are people that, you know, are looking for jobs now, and we think this is a great opportunity for them. But the other big opportunity for us is to build this relationship with Tucker CID and, and many of these employers because, we we'll have a lot of people to employ, and if we can employ people in Tucker, that's that's great. And you also are looking in other regions. I mean, I know Tucker's is not that Tucker's not that far, but are there other partnerships you all have in terms of employment? Yes, I mean we have lots of employment partners, um, and our employment team works with employers uh, on issues like transportation and um, you know interpretation, so that we can get our folks hired and oriented and, um, and, and, and in a job. The one thing I will say is inside Metro Atlanta, because we've had a lot of people reaching out to us and they want to hire our folks and, and we, we would love to, to support them. But if they're an hour, two hours away, that, that, that would be really difficult. Well, you know, Patey in this day, I mean, look, this, the space that we're in right now, some folks are traveling, you know, commute is, is two hours. So I'd certainly understand that. I want to get your thoughts on this because if you, there's a certain amount of time that you all are able to help in terms of rent and, and things of that nature, correct? And also you you got to get the little ones, the kids enrolled in school as well. What is the typical, I don't want to call it adjustment time period, but how long does it usually take to get everything where these households, these families are able to, in a sense, support themselves? Is it a few months, maybe half year? Um, six, six months is, is considered the standard resettlement period. Um, that is a period of time when people have usually started a job, they're able to pay their own bills. They have, we have a whole checklist of services that have been provided. So from an official government point of view, it's six months. Um, we have a lot of services where people can continue to come back because we think that the whole first year can be really overwhelming. And then we have services that support people beyond that, all the way to citizenship. Pedia, what about mental health services um, that are available? You all provide that or at least provide a pathway, so to speak, for that? Um, yeah, I mean, health, physical and mental health services are critically important, especially from people who have, are, are so close to the trauma, mm-hmm. you know, um, and uh we do work with a lot of partners on on with with mental health. I would say that if you ask anybody that worked in the refugee space across the country, there there could be more. Um, but 
yeah, access to mental health is really, really important. We don't provide counseling ourselves, but we work mm -hmm. with dozens of providers um, that can provide that culturally appropriate mental health service. I want to shift for a moment because at the beginning of the year, you wrote for your group's monthly thought leader piece and quote, you said, we cannot rebuild the resettlement program alone. Refugee resettlement has always been a community effort. This is in response to a new administration in the White House. Under President Donald Trump, can you assess the change to the resettlement program and, and if that was problematic for you all? Yeah, I mean, during the Trump administration, resettlement went from 85,000 people in the last year of the Obama administration to uh, a ceiling set at 15,000 in the last year of the Trump administration that we didn't come anywhere near hitting. So uh, a third of resettlement agencies closed down across the country. And most of us, you know, our capacity, we, we, we had to lay off staff, we, we all shrank. Um, that, then that's true of, of all of us. So we're, we're all in that rapid rebuilding mode right now. Absolutely. But there have been some changes already under Biden so far, correct? Yes. I mean, he's lifted, uh, he's increased the ceiling on how many refugees can arrive. Uh, 2021 was still a slow year because of COVID, but we're seeing 2022 is really taken off. Um, so we'll, we'll see a dramatic increase. Um, and also in, in those programs that support refugees um, for longer periods of time, there's more funding, more support but we're growing really fast. I want to get your thoughts on in your response to when you look at the services that we have for the, the Afghan refugees, you look at the situation uh, down at the at the border uh Texas and 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 Mexico and then the Haitians that were trying you know Haitian folks that were trying to come over. When you look at all of this, Padia, and, and I know you cannot take the last 2 minutes to, to come up with a solution that works so that everyone has a what's considered for, for many folks on either side a a legal and a a very productive pathway for folks to become citizens. What's not working? What needs to work? What a big question. I know. You got two minutes. <laughs> yeah. now. I'm just kidding. Two minutes. Okay. I'll no. solve the whole you, problem. You have a little bit more than that. No. I, <laughs> but you see, but you understand, no, I, though, because of, you look at no, the situation I, I think, down in Texas and, and, and folks saying, well, you mean we can't help? Haitian folks and then we're I mean you, I know you've gotten this question before oh yeah absolutely one of the things that I think is is the most important um to, to me is that humanity has to be at the center of our policy and and it's and it's just it's not right now um in in a lot of circumstances you know humanity and and human dignity is not at the center I mean, when you when you see people huddled under a bridge and the, those horrific scenes of of the way Haitians were treated um you know, when you saw family separation, mm -hmm. there, there are so many things where you you see that a person's just dignity isn't being respected. And there's a lot of changes that need to be made in our immigration policy in the United States. But I think an immigration policy where humans were at the center and where human dignity was always respected, um, even if you can't accommodate everybody, being able to just deal with people in, in a humane way and, and, and put that humanity at the center. Um, that's, that's what we really need. Are you all able to help any, any folks from Haiti? 
We, we have been um, working with Haitian medical evacuees from the, um, the previous earthquake for years because they, for the most part, have temporary status that has to be renewed. Um, and so that's been our um, kind of entree into the Haitian community. And so, yeah, we, we do, um, uh, you know, have gotten to know um, that group of, of Haitians very well and, and, and continue to work with them. And I want to ask you this because I think you said the last time you were here, uh, obviously you were in the studio right before the pandemic. How have you all been doing? You all didn't, didn't close down, which is a good thing because you're helping so yeah. many folks. But how are you all? How have you been doing? Uh, well, I, it's been amazing year and a half. Um, we did go completely virtual um, for a while and um, we're able to do that without fully interrupting a single service, which was pretty incredible. That came with a lot of get handing out tablets and teaching people how to use them. Um, a lot of support services. Um, when resettlement slowed down to a trickle, our resettlement team was redeployed as COVID relief and recovery. So everything from, you know, rent assistance, uh, case management, mm -hmm. uh, technology training, all those kinds of things. We've, um, we've, we've been doing so much of that in the community for the last year and a half. It, it, it's been, um, and I think like everybody else, we did things that we didn't know we could do. And, yeah. and that's been the really great part of, of what's otherwise kind of a terrible <laughs> year. Were you all able to receive any federal funding? through the CARES Act or the latest, the last round of funding that came out from the Biden administration? We have received some uh, federal funding to support COVID relief and recovery. Um, and we are, right now, we have a grant from the CDC to um, promote vaccine education and help people get vaccines. All right. Mm -hmm. And again, that fall Tucker Back to Work job fair takes place on October 26th at the Stone Ridge Event Center from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. Looking for a job? Go check it out. Pedia Mixon, New American Pathway CEO. Thank you so much for taking the time as always. Good conversation, important conversation. Well, thank you, Rose, for having me. It's so nice to see you. Even through, you like my hat? I do like your hat. I like your hat. <laughs> now people want to see my hat. Thanks, Petty. I appreciate it. <laughs> All right. Bye-bye, Rose. Join that Curtis Mayfield. Closer Look continues now. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. The longest, did you know this? The longest international border in the world between two countries is Daniel, my producer over there, do you know? Canada. Well, of course it's Canada. Canada. <laughs> There's another nation involved, Daniel. I tell you, these producers. Yes, it's the U.S.-Canadian border. It officially reopened on August 9th and then to all international vis visitors on September 7th of this year. But there's some restrictions still in place. We'll talk about that in a moment. Now, Canada and Georgia have always had a pretty robust trade relationship. In fact, Canada is among Georgia's top five export markets. The other nations are Germany, China, Mexico, and Singapore. It's estimated Georgia exports between $5.1 and $6 billion in goods to Canada. That's on a yearly basis. And then imports $4.3 billion in goods from Canada. And it's not just bacon. Joining me now to talk more about this is Canada's acting Council General of the Southeast. She returns to the program, Louise Belay. Council General Belay, thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it. Hello, Rose. It's wonderful to see you again, to be back on the show. 
Let's begin by picking up from our last conversation, which was about the coronavirus pandemic. According to the Public Health Agency of Canada, you all have a full vaccination rate of about 71 percent of the population. And for 12 and older, it's 81 percent. It's pretty good. Yes, we're very uh, we're very proud of that rollout. As you know, we were a little bit later out of the gates. It uh, Canada does not manufacture the vaccine, any of the vaccines, and we had to procure uh, huge quantities from around the world, and and we were able to do so. And we've had a very good uptake on the part of Canadians. I mean, there's always the last mile is always a tough one, and we're not finished. Uh, we are uh, in the process of putting in place vaccine mandates, mm-hmm. including from the government of Canada for its employees. I saw that. In fact, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, when he announced that, he said, look, unvaccinated federal employees, y'all are going to go on unpaid leave. And also COVID-19 shots would be required for anyone traveling via air, train or ship. This is called one of the world's, and I'm quoting here, one of the world's strictest vaccine mandate policies. Well, our government and Canadians in general, I think, really believe that this is a collective effort. Mm-hmm. We're all going to be better off if we all participate in the vaccine and we have to protect ourselves, our families, our co-workers, and as well as health uh, care providers who are, have been in the front lines for, for uh, over a year now, well over a year, and are showing signs of resilience, but at the same time, signs of, of where uh, it is uh, it is something that we firmly believe is important it's in our best interest and uh, it's also critical to reopening the economy fully we are coming back we've done well coming back out of the pandemic but we all know that until we are really uh, more protected from serious effects of covid uh, we will be uh, we will be suffering some of the negative consequences so it's a collective effort on the part of Canadians and, and our government and do you all have a mask mandate up there as well, Council General Belay? To your knowledge, a mask mandate? Yes, we do. It varies uh, depending on the situation, of course. But also, I mean, it has been. I remember I traveled back in Canada in um, in early September, and I was very happy to see that when you arrive in, in places of of business, such as restaurants, they ask you to to show uh, your vaccine. Uh, proof, proof of vaccination to enter the premise. It depends on the province. It's a provincial jurisdiction, mm-hmm. but some of them, including the province of Quebec, have a QR code on your phone, and that's all you need to, you know, basically flash uh, the maitre d' and uh, and you you uh, you gain entry that way. So, uh, but mask is still needed to get to your uh, you know your table, for example, and, and restaurants across uh, across uh, Canada. As for visitors traveling to Canada, to your knowledge, are there restrictions, especially up north where, you know, folks can just drive right into Canada? What do you know about what's taking place at the border? Well, the border has been um, has been reopened, particularly in the case of Americans to vaccinated American citizens and permanent residents. You can cross the border by land into Canada and cross by air. Mm-hmm. You have to take a PCR test before you leave. It has to be negative if you want to avoid the quarantine of 14 days. And you have to show your proof of vaccination as you cross into, into the country. And if you are vaccinated and negative for COVID, there are no quarantines. You can go about uh, enjoying the great country of Canada. Yeah. Meanwhile, let's talk then about the economy. 
because how would you assess Canada's economy in terms of rebounding? Uh, you are in the midst of that, like many of us are, but from the, the hardships that were caused by the pandemic, how would you assess how you all are doing? Well, we, uh, we have really, quite frankly, it's been impressive to see the resilience in the economy. And we are coming back um, uh, stronger even now. When you look at the trading relationship between Canada and the United States, it's, it's bigger now than it was in 2014, pre-pandemic, uh, pre-pandemic times. Um, so we're doing well. However, uh, we are experiencing some of the same difficulties as the U.S. economy is which is disruption of supply chains Mm -hmm. and difficulty accessing very, very critical components such as chips and so semiconductors. So there, and in this case, we are, the story is of an integrated economy between the United States and Canada. The challenges we face, you face them too. And we firmly believe that if we work closer together and and we are doing that, uh, we will will be able to build back some of the, resiliency that we need uh, to face future challenges. And we're going to get to that in a moment, but I want to just say this. I, I remember reading uh, just recently where container ships were waiting to enter ports in L.A. and, and Long Beach, and it was a, right around maybe 65 to 70 vessels. That was mid-September. And at the average time, I think, to deliver whatever their cargo was was <laughs> nearly nine days um, and then the average transit from China to the U.S. was in 71 days compared to 40 days in 2019. I, we've had so many conversations on this program about you know, the, the issue with the global supply chain. Nobody has an answer because as long as the pandemic and as long as there's a shortage in certain products, we all are just going to have to basically, as my guest said, deal with it in a sense. You And it's definitely doing a couple of things that are that are hitting consumers. And, and that's not only is there shortages of, of particular things that whether cars, refrigerator and so on and so forth that the consumer is trying to purchase, but the price has gone up mm-hmm. significantly. And um, that's having an impact on everything from how it costs, uh, what it costs to build a home to, to acquiring those basic uh, necessities, including groceries and, and of course, unfortunately, gasoline as well. I even read where coffee, Folgers and some other brands were experiencing, uh, they're going to, sorry, folks, I don't mean to be the bearer of bad news, but your coffee prices are going to go up because we can't get the beans over here. I mean, it's 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 affecting everything. Um, you know, as I mentioned, Canada and Georgia, they have this pretty solid trade relationship, past and present. But there are some concerns from Prime Minister Trudeau regarding President Biden's uh, trillion-dollar infrastructure bill. And there's the concerns are about, you know, President Biden's push to for everyone to buy American. And your prime minister said that could be damaging to Canada. Through your lens, how do you see this? Canada really shares the U.S.'s goal uh, to stimulate job creation. We, we really understand that uh, what we need in the economy is more equity, and for that to be the case, you do have to uh, to have robust manufacturing uh, facilities and capabilities at home. However, after years and years of FTA and Kuzma now, you know, NAFTA then Kuzma, mm-hmm. what we have developed in North America is a fully integrated uh, supply chain um, management system. So we don't only sell things to one another, we make things together. 
And some of these provisions that are contained in the infrastructure bill that would up the, the percentage of US content will really disrupt supply chains further because what will happen in the short term is that if those the bill goes through as it is drafted now, it will really uh, limit the capabilities of US companies to source Canadian components that they are critically dependent on right now. So when you close that tap, it doesn't mean that there's another company in the United States that can provide you that component. Mm -hmm. It probably doesn't exist. And, and so, and it probably doesn't have the labor available to do so. So um, it's really going, not only going to hurt Canadian companies, it's actually going to hurt US companies who will be wanting to bid for some of those big infrastructure projects. Well, someone listening will say, well, you talked about an integrated economy, but can't you understand that for folks on this side of the border, too, it creates more jobs for if you are producing your product and we're producing our product, we're creating jobs for everyone. I mean, that sounds very simplistic, but that's kind of what we hear. No, I understand that. But unfortunately, you have to look at things a little bit deeper to, to, to really see it. And that is one of the challenge that we are facing with Buy America, because it sounds so good. And we understand that psychology. We want to uh, protect jobs at home. However, when you have uh, when you have an economy which is at the state that it is at uh, in the United States, where all companies I'm speaking uh, with, not one exception, mm -hmm. what's the number one challenge right now? U.S. economy, labor shortages, mm -hmm. not enough available labor to meet the demand that the U.S. companies have right now, bringing bring in $3 trillion worth of federal spending, and you're gonna squeeze that demand for available labor. And you're going to rise, raise the price and add delays to all of these projects because essentially there'll be delays. And labor activists, labor activists will tell you, well, yeah, that's true, but they also need to pay folks probably a little bit more. That's a whole other conversation. I want to play something for you because your international trade minister, Mary Ng, addressed this issue earlier in the year on the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. I've been working with Canadian businesses as well as provinces and territories and uh, Canadian workers, labor groups, uh, in an effort to make sure that we are taking a Team Canada approach and and doing that advocacy, that really important advocacy to demonstrate how interconnected our supply chains are and how important uh, Canada is. And my pitch to them is that uh, you don't have a better partner uh, than, than Canada and that we are on the shared mission in, uh, in economic recovery uh, together. That's pretty much what you were saying. So let me ask you, uh, Council General Belay, through your lens, you think there is a compromise here or are you all just hoping that maybe some of those provisions come comes out of the Joe Biden's uh, infrastructure bill, which it does, the whole core of it is about rebuilding America. I mean, how optimistic are you? You have your trade minister who, trade minister there who's working, doing what she can. We firmly believe, obviously, in the United States government, um, independence and discretion to, to pass on legislation as he's fit. So all we can do is just bring in uh, the facts to the table, try to get cut through what you can imagine in this case, there are so, so many other components to, the, uh, to this infrastructure bill mm -hmm. that is uh, garnering a lot of public attention. The 200 pages out of a 
you know, a thousand pages related to Buy America provisions is not exactly top of mind. And so this is simply what we're trying to do is bring facts to the table so that we're able to uh, inform those that are making the decisions about the potential negative impact of those of those decisions. And um, we are speaking to a lot of American companies, Canadian companies, Chamber of Commerces that are looking at this issue. And they're the better, they're the best voice, I think, probably. Mm -hmm. We'll do our share as Canadian, as Canadian government. But I think the uh, lawmakers always do better when they hear straight from their own constituents. And I think that's what's starting to happen because people are focusing on this now. The issue of supply chain, uh, chain disruption is, is something that certainly don't want to make worse. And so there is a lot of, uh, a lot more profile being given to this issue of late. And that's very encouraging. And we will see what happens there. We'll have to bring you back whenever, whatever happens with that to get your reaction. Let's talk a bit, a little bit about what you all have been doing here. Obviously, now that the border is open, are you getting phone calls? Are you getting correspondence from people in the southeast, from Canadians saying, okay, can you help me? Are there some particular concerns or challenges that Canadians living here in the southeast or here in Atlanta that are facing that you all are trying to help them with? Canadians that are down here, um, I think at, at the beginning of the pandemic, there were services that were providing uh, Canadians that were either wanting to go back to Canada, the border was uh, never close to Canadian citizens, but there were all sorts of requirements that were needed. At this stage of the pandemic, it's kind of a mature pandemic. Canadians have, have really adjusted down here and many Canadians are hoping to be able to come and travel down south, uh, this is a region that attracts a lot of Canadian tourism, and we're hoping that uh, that will be uh, possible in the next uh, next weeks and months. And um, and generally, I think what we want to see is see that what that resilience is like, but also built on it. There's mm -hmm. so much more potential uh, in the relationship, untapped potential in terms of trade and exchanges. Like that what you've said this back at the table. You've said this a couple of times. So like what? When you say potential, there's so much more. Like what? So and this, we are living in the world now, and I'm talking global, where mm -hmm. we're seeing many, many different changes. And I think there are, there are, you wouldn't have heard the conversation about nearshoring probably two years ago. Now it's a term that everyone is talking about, bringing back some of the some of the manufacturing and some of the sourcing that we have um, we have developed with certain regions in the world. Now Canada is a trading nation. On the other hand, Canada realizes at this time and in and place that this is time to make sure that we're no longer dependent on other nations other than our closest allies so that we can weather the next storm. So that means we we um, incitizing, uh, what's the word I can't pronounce in English, but we intensifying, mm -hmm. intensifying um, our, our, uh, our North America supply chain so that we can be more uh, independent and oh. not depending on certain countries. Are we seeing businesses do that, though, Council General Blair? Are we seeing businesses, when you talk about nearshoring, where they're, they're moving their, their product, their production and operations to a, a nearby country. Are we seeing that more? Is that what you're saying? That that's sort of the trend. 
that is a trend that we are starting to detect now. For me, it's anecdotally uh, anecdotal. I speak to a lot of companies that are getting, that are um, moving some of their operation, expanding, I want to say, but moving some of their operation closer to their customer. That is a trend. And you're hearing this more and more. There are many um, international companies that are establishing antennas and manufacturing capabilities in North America so that they can serve the North America cons consumer um, from their operations here. And of course, as a consumer, if you can get a better deal because of that, that's all important too, because if the production is closer to the consumer, then we may not have to, one, wait four months for, you know, a coffee maker, and then also, two, the price will be worth more. It won't be that's as expensive. Right. And you have, you could argue that it's also a greener approach. Mm -hmm. And we all are trying to uh, to bring down our emissions. And so that means trying to reduce the travel uh, of products to from, from production to market. And that is part of the answer to uh, addressing our climate, uh, climate change challenges. We have talked about how the pandemic has amplified so many inequities and so many issues. And when we talk about trade, then you're saying throughout this whole conversation that what this pandemic is also showing us that we can improve productions from neighboring countries. We can improve that. So again, the Biden by American plan, you feel disrupts that. Would it disrupt the entire Southeast in terms of trade partners with Canada? Not We talked about Georgia a little bit, but are you saying this would disrupt the entire Southeast or maybe the entire nation? I cannot think of a region that has benefited more from NAFTA and now KUSMA or uh, USMCA, as you like to say down here, uh, um, than the Southeast. Look at the incredible growth in advanced manufacturing that has happened from Mississippi all the way up to North Carolina. Mm -hmm. That happened because of those supply chains. And they're with Canada and they're with, they're with, um, with Mexico. Therefore, when you apply restriction to what is already functioning well, but recovering from supply chain disruptions, uh, coming a lot of it from further a field, then you really are de destabilizing mm -hmm. something that's worked so well for this region. And I think that um, often we don't realize what we have until we lose it. Mm -hmm. And I, one of the things that I keep saying is let's not take each other for granted. We are partners and we're better and stronger together. Yeah. Uh, we make more competitive, let alone what we're able to sell to ourselves. But if we want to compete on the world stage, we create better products, more competitive products when we do them together. Mm -hmm. And that's just been proven over and over and over again. And certainly the Southeast United States has been the region that has, um, that has definitely been the, the incredible um, I think a poster child, if I can use that expression, mm -hmm. for that success. And also, if we can get folks jobs, a lot of folks are looking for jobs too. Canada's Acting Council General of the Southeast, Louise Blade, thank you so much for taking the time. Always good conversation. I always learn a little bit more about trade because I know nothing about it, which is why you're on the show. So I appreciate it. 
It was my pleasure. So happy to see you again, Rose. Take All the care. best. You too. Bye. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder, you can catch Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. And if you missed that, there's always a podcast. And if you missed that, you can always go online. Now, if you can't find it there, I don't know what to tell you, but it's there. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.